Welcome back. You're still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio program. And we are now in overtime. We are now in overtime, which is the second half of the program. Online only. Got rid of those folks on the radio. Let's take a look at uh, uh, take a look at some chat. Uh, we appreciate we really appreciate the folks in the chat in Facebook and on YouTube. During our conversation with Matthew Clark, Clarence Barr said, uh, "Has the state DA, I think you meant Attorney General, yet said anything about the Hyundai plant and child labor?" And no, nothing. I mean, like that's just that's t- Looney Tunes, Looney Tunes. Um, and then Strom mentioned uh, Strom said. In response to Matt saying something about, um, you know, oh, if there are people filing, you know, filing complaints or something and, and DAs aren't doing anything about it, well, then that's an issue. He says, you can just file a suit just like that. It's so easy, you know, with the obvious implication that it's not. He says, there's no guarantee that a lawyer will take your case on a contingency basis. And that's absolutely right. Like, working people don't have the money to just hire lawyers right finding the time and the money and the lawyer totally uh um, and and just to go through an exercise uh in a rigged system you know that's that's a lot to ask uh and the chance of success is way too low jose says i just started reading about the nlrb decision about the united mine workers uh of america and yeah it's definitely i'm minus my very concerning that it's not a decision yet, but it is very concerning. And if they do side with the uh, with the with the company, it'd be terrible. I mean, I think we should see this to... as a uh, telegraph of what other corporations are going to do. Warrior Met will not be the last company to pursue right. this kind of um, of request. Right. I mean, I think I think we're going to see a trend, unfortunately, um, and so that's why. The decision, when it comes, will be so important. Clarence says, why and what was keeping the DA or State Department of Labor from prosecuting or investigating the Hyundai plant? Is someone at the plant, does someone at the plant have an end with the government? Because this is insane. And yeah, Good well, questions. I mean, we paid them a lot of money to come here. Good questions. Ron says, they had no idea the children were underage. They just thought they were short adults with delayed development. That's probably, they would say something like that. Yeah, we'll probably see that in a court filing one day. (laughs) Yeah, in response to, (laughs) this was pretty funny, in response to Matt saying uh, that flat earthers are imperfect, (laughs) Strom says, like, imperfect in all caps, and Jeb says, wow, in the chat. Uh, That was, was, you know, I mean, uh, that's accurate. You know, it's an accurate way to describe his views on the shape of the earth. They're imperfect. Um. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's one thing to, yeah, uh, 1819 clearly was uh, very flattering and uh, positive in their was, overall tone and approach right. towards that guy. Yeah, I mean, who look, was a total nut? I yeah, I mean, I'm all for like letting letting people talk but yeah right got, you got we've had people somebody, say stupid shit on our you, show you gotta let people you gotta let your audience know the the crazy things that they're about you can't just have a flat earther pro-military coup i mean the flat earth is just kind of like a silly thing but like pro-military coup like wants to execute joe biden like your audience needs to know that your audience needs to know that and maybe their audience would think that was a good thing you know i don't know but they need to know that 
That's serious stuff. Um, Clarence says, Remedies for lost production is like claiming I deserve a bailout because I ran the company into the ground. Uh, it's the company's own fault for that loss, obviously. Uh, Ron says, Does the NLRB police Warrior Med as aggressively as, the, as they police the UMWA? Mm. Presumably not, but there are, the NLRB press secretary did say that there are charges being, uh, that, that are working their way through the system with war, against Warrior Met as well that presumably might we might like a little bit better so you know i don't know we'll see about that william pina uh says good morning comrades good morning william uh mr anderson says water levels in the west are getting really low and yeah that's some crazy stuff i just saw that on means tv yesterday insane have you seen that adam yeah i i I saw means morning news actually yeah Mm -hmm. same thing uh it's yeah it's very concerning. Uh, certainly would not want to live out west right now, as mm-hmm. as tough as the south is, and in no. a myriad of ways. Um, I don't know. I, I would I would hesitate to even want to buy a house or move out in the west because places like Nevada, Arizona, mm-hmm. are, are becoming increasingly hostile to life. Yeah. William says, "Looks like we're back on the um, back on the the." Uh, UMWA story. I understand that the miners' union agreed to pay a smaller percentage of damages to Warrior Met. That's crazy. Yeah, thirty-three times less. They entered the settlement. They signed the settlement with the understanding that it'd be about four hundred thousand dollars. Jose says, "I can see UPS, Amazon, and Starbucks uh, and yep. all these ca- corporations yep. taking notes." That's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I mean, we see what notes. we see what Starbucks is doing right now, and of course, we've seen what Amazon's been doing. Um, I think we're going to see escalating uh, mm-hmm. actions from the yep. bosses. Mel Sutton says, how about the $45 million hit, uh, uh, the right-wing hate conspiracy theory Alex Jones took? Yeah. Oh, yeah. $45 million Alex Jones has to pay to pretty, the victims of hilarious. the uh, – to the parents of the Sandy Hook victims that he slandered for years on his show. Uh, it, I mean, his attorney – <laughs> Turning over his entire cell phone yeah, contents pretty, to the other side. Where do I mean? Where do they find these attorneys? Yeah. Um, I could have done better than that. Joe Marshall says I contacted the AG office and they passed the buck to the Alabama Department of Labor. Well, and, you know, of course, of course they did. But thanks for calling, Joe. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Anderson says shout out back to the YouTube chat. Shout out to the great reporting from Means Morning News. Absolutely, Absolutely. we are huge fans of that program yeah. on this program. Um, and I think it's – if you're looking for a way to have a concise, digestible size news program, 15 to 20 minutes, to give you the daily rundown, mm-hmm. I don't know of any anybody else doing it better. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, what I love about it is is very focused on labor, though not exclusive uh, mm-hmm. to labor, but – um, you got occasional UFO reports, and that's that's always that's fun. true. Yeah, yeah. So, definitely, highly recommend uh, Means Morning News, um, and also uh, I, I saw uh, Strom mentioning in the chat uh, about the American state and how it is not our friend, um, and I think you know, it's just every everyday reminders of the ways in which state power is used to uphold our current status quo and sometimes we have openings little bits of space where we are able to kind of bend things to make a little bit of progress 
it's not the uh, it's not the norm. It's not the way it's set up. Right. Yeah. Speaking of the state not being our friend, um, Travis McCoy in the Facebook chat, steward of the letter carriers locally here, said Starbucks hired a former CIA and Pinkerton operative oh for my God. a regional intelligence position back in March. And that story just came out. Did you see that, Adam? Uh, no, that's yeah. news to me. So they're hiring CIA and Pinkerton operatives. Wow. Wow. Crazy stuff. Absolutely crazy stuff. Yeah, uh, that's very disturbing and, yep. and not at all surprising, but it is disturbing. Let's hit a couple of these, uh, a couple short uh, updates. Well, we've got um, uh, Matt in the Zoom yeah, uh, whenever wanna, you're ready for Matt. Let's uh, let's hit these just for uh, just really quick. The Scottsboro update. Cause I oh, absolutely. I want to make sure that we get absolutely. that Scottsboro update and then we'll bring Matt on. Um, so, you know, folks, folks remember that a that, uh, week and a half ago or so, two workers were fired at the Scottsboro, Alabama Starbucks location. Um, and uh, this has been, this is in the context of retaliation against working people at Starbucks all across the country. More Perfect Union has documented over 70, over 70 workers fired mm. by Starbucks in retaliation across 20 states. We know these firings are in retaliation because of how absolutely stupid they are. In one case, a guy got fired because he was in the building too early. I have never been reprimanded for being too early on the job before. Just yesterday, they fired a 13-year veteran of the company in retaliation. This guy gave 13 years of his life to the company, and just like that, they cut him loose. And there are folks who think that that's okay. Who yeah. think that your boss should be allowed to do that uh, without repercussion. Like they, they owe nothing to you after you having given them 13 of the best years of your life. Spent most of your waking you, moments you, you dare to speak work. up, you dare to fight back, uh, and your employment's yanked away from you. Uh I really uh, crazy. wishing wishing these workers all the best uh, in the fights ahead because uh, I, I I know something uh, we've heard from some of our listeners is that you know we want to see the labor movement really rally behind these Starbucks workers uh, as more and more folks are being fired as stores are being closed this is a pretty pivotal moment it's a pretty make yeah. or break. They're also closing some stores and uh, blaming crime with right-wingers' help and spreading that message, despite the workers at those stores not actually wanting them to close. Right. Which would, you know, presumably be the point to protect the people under your employ. Uh, and these closings just so happen to have a much higher percentage of union stores than the general population. Huh, imagine that. Very strange. 30% of these stores that they're closing are union, and only something like, is it 3% of their stores, if that, are unionized? Right. I, it, vastly disproportionate. Vastly, whatever it is. They, they've got 9,000 stores and, and 200, uh, 200 that are um Unionized, so you do the math on that. Right, and the workers aren't, you know, uh, they're not taking these things lying down. They're taking them to court. They're striking. They're holding demonstrations to remind the bosses who makes the business run. And that brings me to last weekend, where we had all told 
about 40 or 50 community members from an array of organizations and over half a dozen unions come to support the Scottsboro Starbucks location. Let's put that picture up on the screen because it is really cool. Uh, over half a dozen unions came to the Starbucks location in Scottsboro to show support for the workers there that are forming a union and have raised over $2,000 to support the workers who were fired during this time and the workers who are still employed there and potentially facing lost hours and retaliation. They've got a goal of $3,000, uh, and you can donate if you haven't yet at bit.ly slash Scottsboro hyphen relief. That is bit.ly slash Scottsboro hyphen relief. And uh, mark your calendars, folks, because we are going to be doing it again. We're going to be doing it again right before ballots are due. We will be meeting on Sunday, August 14th. Sunday, 14 August at noon at the Scottsboro Starbucks location on John T. Reed Parkway. So be there or be square and one more request uh, to put out into the ether they're looking for a union hall in the scottsboro area to watch the count from virtually from the nlrb and i don't think there's a union hall in scottsboro um but maybe some of y'all know one maybe some of y'all know one uh let me know if there is and i'll pass it on but I'm thinking, unfortunately, that the closest union hall is going to be the IBEW Hall on Clinton Avenue in Huntsville, and that's a bit of a drive. So if anybody knows of a union hall closer to Scottsboro than that, please let me know so I can pass that on to them. But it was, it was fantastic to see folks from all these different organizations and unions coming together for a righteous cause, and I really uh, enjoyed the conversations that we had there got a chance to talk with joe marshall in person and that was fantastic and um really hope that it kind of lifted some spirits of of these very brave workers at starbucks i'm just incredibly proud of what they're doing and and how they're organizing yeah yeah it's really really exciting so we have now um we've got matt bernico in the zoom is that right uh let's double check that yes we do let me uh, get him on the screen and unmuted. Matt Bernico is co-host of the Magnificast, and he joins us now. Matt, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, Jacob. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, too. Hey, uh, close the clean feed. Yeah, we're somehow the, we still got the uh, old FM the, radio coming yeah, through. Sorry close, about that, Matt. That. Yeah, no worries. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Matt Bernico is host of the Magnificast, co-host of the Magnificast. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So uh, the Magnificast is a podcast about the intersection of leftist politics and Christianity. Talk to us about talk to us about the podcast. Like what it, you know what what is it about beyond that, and what are you what are you trying to do with it? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So I do uh, the Magnificast with my, I guess my best friend. I don't know. I'd say he's my best friend. <laughs> Dean Detloff, he's uh, he's great. 
um, yeah, so we have, we put an episode about every week where we kind of talk through um, the intersections of Christianity and leftist politics really broadly construed. Um, so, you know, uh, sometimes we'll talk about a current event that is uh, happening sort of in the religion beat. Sometimes we'll talk about something that's completely unrelated. Uh, sometimes we'll talk about liberation theology or radical readings of the Bible. Um, sometimes we'll talk about, uh, I don't know, what's happening with, uh, with workers, who's on strike, um, or, or how that kind of works in the, the bigger scope of like political economy. So we're just, we're just two dudes with a podcast who are uh, pretty interested in religion and the ways that uh, religious people uh, figure out, you know, and like use their own language and rhetoric uh, to talk about politics. I think y'all do that really, really well. And absolutely, you mentioned uh, that you know recently you've done uh, um, a loose series, sort of, of, of reading parables on the show in some interesting ways. Can you talk to us about about that particular series that you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely. A loose series is a great way to put it. Um, <laughs> you know, we we put out one episode every week, and sometimes um, in our uh, <laughs> you know we have pretty hectic lives. I think so. Sometimes it's just like struggling to find what we're going to do next. Um, but yeah, we um, we found this really fascinating book um, by a New Testament scholar called William Herzog. Uh, William Herzog is like a sort of a historicist, uh, around, like a, a historicist when it comes to the New Testament. So that's what he wants to know, like. Um, what in the New Testament did Jesus really say? What was added in later? Um, how would the people uh, who were listening to Jesus or you know the other sort of characters in the New Testament, how would they have heard those words? What would they have meant to them? Um, so we, we did a, um, a, like three episodes around Jesus's parables. Uh, William Herzog, he has this book called Parables of Subversive Speech. And we found that book really interesting because when you crack it open, um, all of the parables that you've ever heard in church, uh, for, I mean, at least in, in my case, are completely different when you kind of start viewing them as um, in, within like a historical context rather than just like how your pastor tells you to, <laughs> to read them or something. So, yeah, we, um, we, we started uh, doing these episodes around uh, those parables. And what we found was that, um, you know, the things that you go to church and you hear a parable and it's kind of like a nice fairy tale about like um, something really theological, something really high-minded, some kind of like pie in the sky kind of idea. But, um, but what the book points out to us and what we've kind of been talking about on our podcast is that really when you get down to it, Jesus is like giving really practical advice about politics. Um, and if you know the historical part about that, you can kind of see that. Um, and and uh, Jesus becomes far less of like a um, like a, a, an otherworldly sort of theological figure when you read the Bible this way, and and much more of like a political organizer. Like he's a guy that shows up to talk to like farmers and poor people and um, and start conversations about the things that are really wrong in the world. And I have uh, I've really enjoyed listening to it. I grew up, I think, and, and both of y'all have talked about. Um, either growing up in or having brushes with evangelical Christianity. And, you know, I hear a lot as somebody who kind of um, who, who grew up in, in a sort of evangelical Christianity as well. Sometimes I'll hear, and, and I told y'all this, like maybe quote unquote subversive or, or radical or, or liberal interpretations of scriptures. And, and um, I told y'all that the, the kids would say it sounds to me like cope uh, <laughs> like like copium mm -hmm. um, like they are really really stretching um, just because I, I've got those I've got those interpretations so deeply wedged 
you know, in in my head that I think like if this is real at all, this is what it means. Um, but y'all were talking about the one that really, really stuck out to me. Uh, gosh, I can't. I, I think it was the one about the parable of the sower, um, and it, it it really hit me. Like, oh, this sounds like that could be right. That sounds, you know, that sounds like this this tracks. This makes sense. Um, is, so, could you could you give us a, a really quick, um, just a really quick overview, a, a review of that of that parable, and and maybe what it what it potentially actually means, or or at least one viable interpretation that y'all talked about. Yeah. So the uh, man, there's so many parables out there. It's hard to keep them all straight. That's for sure. Um, the, the one that we talked about on, uh, the podcast, I think that you're referring to is actually called the parable of the, uh, the workers in the vineyard. That's in the, uh, there's a few of these, you know, when it comes to parables, it's like, there's always a vineyard, there's always a King, there's always, you know, whatever (laughs) servants, all kinds of stuff, really agrarian sort of scenes. Right. Uh, but the one that you're talking about is actually in the gospel of Mark. And it's, it's really interesting because it's the only book, it's the only gospel that this parable come, um, comes up in. I won't, um, I won't go into reading the entire, th- the, the, the uh, Bible verse on this, um, on the radio here. Uh, that's made for a different radio station, but uh, I'll, I'll give you the, the cliff notes here. So basically in this parable in Mark, uh, Jesus is um, telling a story to these, uh, I mean, who, who people who have been farmers, right? And he, the, the story goes like this. Um, so there's a rich man who comes and buys up land in, um, I don't know, wherever they are, you know, the turn of the millennium Palestine or whatever, Judea, who knows? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, so there's a rich man that comes and buys up land and turns it into a vineyard. He hires a bunch of um, tenants to farm the vineyard and um, it's going, you know, whatever. The the thing, oh, hang on, before I get into the historical stuff, I'll keep going. Um, it's going well, whatever. Um, so uh, as time progresses, the person who owns the land, who owns the vineyard, who came to buy it up, um, he starts sending people to collect rents for the vineyard, right? So, you know, he sends one person and the tenants are like, they beat him up and they send him away. Uh, and then the, te- the landowner sends another person to come collect rents for the land. And they, again, they beat him up and send him away. And then um, the, the landowner kind of goes uh, out on a, a pretty desperate limb. And instead of sending like another, just like, I don't know, goon to, <laughs> goon to uh, extract rents, they send their son. And instead of um, beating them up and sending them away, the tenants are like, well, this is our chance. We're going to kill the son and take the land. Um, so they do that in the story, right? And then um, this is this is the, the parable that Jesus is telling. So the way that um, that Christians read that story, I think is pretty clear, right? It's like, it's a story that foretells Jesus' death. We can like, um, we, we kind of look at that story as sort of an, an analogy uh, to to the situation of, of of Jesus coming to you know people and and trying to collect the rents I guess it's a, a weird metaphor but you know in this story we kind of like assign all of the characters up and down to you know certain theological ideas like the person who buys up the um, the land and owns the vineyard we assume automatically is God and the um, the people who God sends to like get the rents from the people. Those are the prophets. And then when God's, uh, you know, the landowner sends a son, that's representative of Jesus. And in each one of these cases, um, we're supposed to associate ourselves with the, with the, like the sort of wicked tenants who beat up the people and whatever. That's like the overly theolo- theologized and allegoricalized version of that story. And, it, and, and uh, what, what this book uh, 
from William Herzog, the guy that we're kind of reading and studying here, is telling us is like, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not how the people who um, heard that story would have understood it themselves. So, and it's kind of funny because um, the author of this book, Herzog, he's like, well, you know, if you're talking to a bunch of like workers, like agricultural workers who are constantly being screwed over by landowners, they're not going to associate the person who owns their vineyard with God, right? That's not how it would work out. The, the landowner's the bad guy. <laughs> Why would we think that? So um, the, the historicized reading goes a little something different, right? So instead of these landowners being like, um, you know, like, uh, it, it tries to answer the question, why are these um, tenants like beating up the sun? Like, why do they think that, um, you know, that would work or whatever? So the historicized reading explains that like, it's not actually a, theo- like a theological allegory at all. It's actually just like um, a story about um, like peasant revolts and how they would happen often. And, and the, the way that this uh, story works in the, in the gospel is that it's not really about another world at all. It's not about Jesus' death at all. Jesus is just saying, hey, peasant revolts have never worked. <laughs> so maybe don't try that. Don't try to kill your landowner's son. Um, instead, what else should you do? Because that, that's the interesting part about parables too, is that they're not sort of like stories that are encapsulated within themselves. They're like the beginning of like a teaching or an organizing moment that you might have with somebody, right? Jesus tells that story. And then at the end is like, okay, so what would you do next? If peasant revolts are not the way forward, what would you do next to maybe like uh, get this awful landowner off your back or something, right? So there's a whole bunch of other like historical context that I'm, I'm happy to talk about if you want, but um, that, that's kind of like the, the crux of these episodes that we've been doing. Um, you know, we, we have certain ways of reading the parables in really allegorical ways. Um, but uh, if you think about them historically and kind of you do this like homework, which there's a lot of it, and learn about the ancient world and how all this works, what you get is Jesus is far more of like a political organizer. He's, he's interested in labor. He's interested in the, the problems that people just run into in their lives and less so about like what happens when you die or like, or if he's, you know, the son of God or, or something like that. I mean, those things are important, but like they're, they're not the main pieces of these stories, right? There's something else going on that's sort of deeper in them. Yeah, I think that the the when I it really the I, I think the light bulb really turned off when you mentioned about like during this time people the peasants were super super exploited by the landowners by the people who were going to come and buy their vineyards and so why would it be exactly that I associate you know it would be like <clears throat> today telling a parable about Amazon and including Jeff Bezos and 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 then trying to make the assumption that an Amazon worker is going to think Bezos is God in the analogy like why would you why would you think that as an Amazon worker somebody telling you a parable about Jeff Bezos why would you think that he is analogous to God in in the situation and so that was that was really fascinating to me and then I think once you start thinking that way a lot of the other stuff kind of fall into place um and, and make a lot more sense that you know because that's what that's what they do every time you hear about a vineyard every time you hear about something the the landowner the king is always assumed in evangelical sermons to be the allegory to god and uh i think there's a lot of value in questioning that assumption Totally. It's so bonkers that that's how we've just sort of learned to read the Bible. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's the ways that like uh, extremely, extremely like, uh, like 
owner class sort of people have come to shape the way that even our religion works, which is bonkers. It would definitely um, be convenient for somebody like Bezos that he would be the god, uh, you know, allegory in a story. You know, it's right. like works out super well for him, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been uh, uh, off the podcast. I've been reading this book along with some people at my church that I, that I go to, and uh, they're finding it really fascinating. So the other night we met and we read a parable. It's in uh, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, but it shows up in a bunch of places. And I'm sure people are kind of familiar with this one. It's a little bit more um I don't know, popular, I guess. Um, But it's Matthew 18, and it's called The Parable of the Unrepentant Servant. And uh, it's a really interesting one because uh, the basic story is this, that there's like this king and um, there's a servant that comes to him. And the servant uh, owes the king like an unimaginable debt, just like basically what is the equivalent of a gazillion dollars, right? And um, the king says, yeah, sure, I I forgive this debt from you, um, no problem. And then um, in turn, the servant goes out and uh, finds somebody who owes him money and um, basically strangles him until this person pays. And then uh, the uh, other servants go back to the king and say, listen, this guy, you just forgave his money. You forgave his debt. And now he's out here beating up people to collect debts. Um, what's going on there? And the king like tortures him or whatever. Right. So this is another one of those parables where, again, people assume that uh, the king that tortures people is God and that the, the servant uh, here is us. And it's about like sort of grace and, and forgiving of debts. And there's something cool about that. I mean, that's great. Um, whatever. But um, in the historicized reading, the end becomes like, you know, well, the king obviously wouldn't have been God to the people who were hearing it because like kings were not great. They're, you know, they're like a, an imperialist sort of occupying force. It's like the Romans and, and so on. Right. Um, but uh, in the historicized reading, the, uh, the end is actually about like, what, what if there was a sort of politician or, you know, a popular politician who did something for you, like forgave your debts or something. Right. Um, what if they did that? But fundamentally, nothing else changed in society. Um, oh, like it's it's a story about like a, a messiah who comes and like does something for you. That's really nice. But nothing nothing fundamentally changes systemically. So it, it's a it's a more interesting reading of the story because um, that's really good political advice. I think right, yeah, out, a lot right? of parallels to the nonprofit industry, the charities, and so on. Absolutely. I mean, so I was reading with people at my church and we we're kind of having a conversation about it. And they're like, well, that makes complete sense. Right. Because if you were to tell a similar parable today, like who would be who would be the king in the story? I mean, it's I mean, it's Joe, it's Joe Biden. It's Donald Trump. Right. And we would never think those guys are the good guys. So it's just like, um, yeah, just kind of a silly, a silly assumption to bring to the Bible. But um, it's it's you know, it's important because. Uh, you know, we, we're always bringing our own assumptions to, to biblical texts and, and things like that. So it's good to kind of get like a different perspective that gives you a, a different ending to the story. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and so the we can kind of shift gears a little bit because the first thing that that um, or the thing that a couple of months ago that I, I ran across that I was like, oh, this would be a good a good reason to get him on the show is you wrote a you wrote an article for Sojourners about Christianity and labor and you know that yeah. we need uh, organized labor or organized religion maybe needs to be more into organized labor something like that talk to talk to us about you know that that article and the impetus for it like what was it that made you want to want to write that yeah absolutely so uh you're right yeah the article is in sojourners uh you can go find it there it's called recent union wins means it's time for more organized religion um so okay um apart from my podcast i'm a, a labor organizer and that's great 
Um, I love doing that. And I think what's really interesting about, um, you know, like a strike or a labor action or, you know, whatever, all kinds of those things. I don't think I've ever been to one where clergy members don't show up. You know, there's always a priest, there's always a pastor, there's always, you know, maybe some nuns or an imam or, you know, uh, anyone, um, a rabbi, some, they always show up. And that's awesome. I'm super psyched about that. Super psyched to see sort of like faith leaders come and be moral voices on a strike line or, on, uh, you know, at a, a labor action. I think that's really great. But I guess what's a bummer about that is that like, um, rarely do you see an entire congregation show up or, um, you know, it's, it's, um, you, you see a handful of like clergy, but you don't see all the regular people. And yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes labor actions are planned at times when, <laughs> you know, people are working or whatever. Um, but I guess it just like occurred to me that, uh, labor and like community support, uh, is something that religious people, uh, of any faith tradition should be like really, uh, invested in, I think, um, I mean, my context is Christianity, so I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's a, uh, so in that article that I wrote for Sojourners, I um, am kind of like um, talking about this, uh, a, a liberation theologian from El Salvador. He's a Jesuit. Uh, his name is Ignacio Evacuria. Um, he is a, a really fantastic uh, theologian um, and was also, uh, you know, put his life on the line basically for what he believed in El Salvador and was killed uh, because of sort of, he's, you know, martyred. Um, but he writes this, uh, he has this essay that's called The Crucified People. And it's really an interesting essay because it's asking questions about like, um, did Jesus have to die on the cross or something? Um, and this is like a big question that I guess like plagues some Christians, uh, an interesting theological question, right? Is that necessary? And Elicuria says it's only necessary insofar as that all people like Jesus end up on the cross in one way or the other, right? All people, because, all people who are kind of like of that class um, that he calls the crucified people, all people who are workers, people who get low wages, people who are exploited by their bosses and their landlords, they always end up crucified by the system, right? That's kind of like the takeaway from this text. And if that's the case, then like what it means to be a person who thinks something important about Jesus, whether, you know, you think he's the son of God or you think he's just a really cool guy. Both, I guess, are fine in my case, so I don't know. Um, but if you think if you think Jesus is an important character or he uh, represents something powerful or, or noteworthy, then it's like you should also not just be on Jesus' side, but you should be on the side of all the people who are just like Jesus in the world. All the people who show up to work and, you know, have their wages stolen or they get a their, their union bust or they get sexually harassed on the job or, or whatever, right? Um, those are all people who are, you know, for the most part, they, they have more, they have more in common with Jesus and they have in common with CEOs and their bosses. Right. So in, in the essay, I'm, I'm kind of like arguing that out and saying like, if, if you're a Christian and you think Jesus is really great, then you should think all these other people are really great too. And, and the interesting part is that like, um, you know, it, <laughs> putting it in historical context, like I was just talking about, right. If you were there for the crucifixion of Jesus, you wouldn't just like, hang your head and be like, well, I guess this is the way it has to be. No, you'd be really mad. <laughs> you'd be really incensed that like a guy who you know, who you think is great is, is getting executed by the state and you would try to stop it probably. And, and I think that's kind of like the impetus for people who are Christians. Um, you know, if you think that Jesus is really great, then you have to recognize that people are struggling just like Jesus did and they're being crucified just like Jesus did. And I guess more metaphorical ways. Um, but we have to show up for them, right? We, we can't let them be crucified. That's nonsense. We have to show up for them and try to take them down off that cross or uh, 
uh, you know, whatever that might mean in the situation, um, show up to their workplace and yell at their boss or make sure that they get a union election that's fair uh, or make sure their wages aren't getting stolen, but that their boss thinks that they can get away with it, right? So that's what I was basically arguing. And, and at the end, I kind of just give a, a handful of like practical steps for churches that want to get involved with labor. Um, I think that's really important. Um, if you go to a church and your church is not involved in labor, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> call, call your local union, get somebody to come out and talk to you, um, figure out how you can start showing up for labor actions. It's all really, I think, really important. Um, I, I think that it's, uh, yeah, I mean, if, Christian, if, if Christians and churches want to remain relevant in a way that's not just, uh, you know, for Christian nationalists or whatever, this is the way to do it, uh, showing up on strike lines. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I think so, and I, I think it's important, and I think, that, like you said, there's a, there's a certain amount of, um, you know, moral strength that comes from, you know, places like the church and, and, and clergy folks, but uh, it, it would definitely be amplified by seeing more of their congregants out there and seeing, you know, that people are, are taking what they're saying seriously about these sorts of, you know, uh, about these sorts of issues. Why do you think it is that um, that this doesn't happen more than it does? It's a super good question, and it's a hard one to answer, too. I think that there's a few reasons, right? Like, I mean, first and foremost, I think the, the biggest reason is that um, it is the right, uh, not, not leftists, not liberals, who have organized the church in the last, you know, 50 years or so. So, you know, when it comes to evangelical denominations and um, even even Catholic denominations, even mainline Protestant denominations, the right has a far sort of stronger grasp on those spaces than the left does. So um, I guess that's the that's at least the frame that I work off of, right? So like, why aren't people showing up? It's because people don't know to show up. They don't know that these that, that their voices are valuable in those spots, right? And I think also it's, you know, I, I mean, we can't just be sort of like, um, well, it's the right's fault, but it's also because we don't think of churches in the same way as we think of like our workplaces or, you know, our schools or whatever. Churches are places that we ought to organize just like anywhere else. Um, there's a group of people and, you know, maybe you like them, maybe you don't, I don't know. <laughs> churches can be complicated for sure. Right. But they are places to have conversations about politics. They're, they're place, you know, places where you can, um, organize people to show up to things, to get involved in things. And uh, I think, you know, those are the reasons. Um, uh, Christianity has, has been largely held captive by the right. Um, and I think that uh, we just don't think of them as, as places to organize, but we ought to. I think that is just excellent. Um, and I think that's something that we don't think about enough. And, and I really appreciate you making that point um, because most of us on the left – we don't see churches as an op organizing space, uh, and we do have complicated relationships with the churches. But I think that's so so important, and and there are relationships there in churches um, that are that are pre-existing, right? I mean, you're not you're not having to uh, create these relationships out of thin air. There's obviously there's something there. There's something bringing you together. Uh, there's probably a lot of shared history. So. I think that's just that's an excellent point, and I really wanted to echo that. Um, and, and I liked your your quote there that it's the right that has organized the churches. So if we can acknowledge that it needs to happen, it's possible. Uh, we we acknowledge that 
we have lost so far um, greatly. Really, I, I would argue at least since the New Deal is, I guess, when things really started to shift, is my understanding, uh, and escalated obviously much more recently in the last four or five decades. Uh, but I, I really, what I dig about what you guys are doing on the Magnificast is that. You know, it's one thing for us to say, like, in the abstract that we get the ideologies, the ruling ideologies of the day or the ruling class's ideology. Um, but to see how y'all can really break it down in terms of the church, in terms of how the teachings of Jesus, how the, the words in the Bible have been interpreted and how they've been passed on to so many of us uh, and how that really reflects capitalist, it does not reflect labor, uh, which would be the vast majority of us. So I, I just, I really like that. I think it's necessary. Um, I grew up being raised Southern Baptist. Uh, you know, Jacob grew up in the Holiness Church. Um, I think there's a whole lot of us out there who were raised in churches and particularly evangelical churches where we got those sort of interpretations. And so it's uh, it's refreshing to see a different perspective on that. And, you know, those are the types of perspectives that have helped me to reevaluate what do I believe and what do I think? Uh, because like a lot of lefties, you know, I had that the upbringing and then ran away from it. Um, but there, there's uh, a lot more nuance there. And that's, you know, I really appreciate what y'all do to kind of bring that nuance out. Uh, and have those conversations about what does it mean to be, you know, a labor unionist and someone dedicated to the working class in relationship with Christianity. Yeah, you know, I mean, first of all, uh, I'm not a particular like mission missionary oriented person in the sense that I think people like should be Christians or come to church. Like, you know, whatever you you do, what's good for you for sure. Yeah, you Don't do uh, you. You do you is right. Uh, don't you know if you grew up in the church and it messed you up don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry about trying to like find your way back in if you don't want to, I guess. But that being said, you know, I think that there's something really important um, about religion in the United States and kind of understanding it. If we want to be really good at activating some kind of social movement, right? Like um, religion is a, is a big deal in the United States. And especially here in the South. Totally. Yeah. Right. You know, and that doesn't always mean church, right? Because a lot of people, you know, would maybe identify as being uh, spiritual, but not like the person that goes to church or, or something, right? You know, you might, be, you might think of yourself a Christian, but you don't go to church at all. Whatever, that's cool. But yeah, I think that if we kind of leave out that like cultural space uh, in our organizing, we're really missing out. It, you know, but it, and it's also the case too, like um, that when it comes to a union election or a drive or something, it, your community is not going to win that for you. You know, like whether or not you have clergy people show up is not going to win that for you. But, um, you know, it's not bad to have a community of people at your back that can show up and, and yell, uh, yell at your boss or something. And, and like you said, I mean, we have to, we have to organize the population that we have. Uh, and at least still to this day, there's a significant number of people who are religious or who have certainly been influenced by, uh, religion. Um, predominantly Christianity, but not exclusively. And, you know, we have to be able to have conversations with those folks. Um, and, you know, I think one thing that that's really uh, stuck with me over the 
last couple of years for sure uh, is some of the language that Cornell West uses in terms of you know love is what justice looks like in public um, and kind of thinking about the intersection of love and justice and solidarity and how those concepts really um, you know interlock how they um, are expressed and so I think those are just those are important conversations to have and, and I think um, we're seeing something in this country, sort of a revival of the left, or at least it appears so, and a revival of the labor movement. Um, and I'm just going to be watching to see kind of is there a revival in this particular type of religion or Christianity that is more focused on justice, uh, that is more uh, viewing, learning lessons from Jesus, the political organizer, um, and I, we'll see how that plays out. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't have those answers. But um, I think it's fair to say that given the state of our world, given the state of our country, there is probably a spiritual yearning among mm -hmm. folks. We, we can see what the, the widespread uh, statistics in terms of depression and anxiety and, and other uh, diseases and, and deaths of despair. And I think the conditions continue to deteriorate and so whether you're spiritual at all you know as materialist as you may be there's still something um affecting the psyche of of our people so yeah, and that's that's you know i'm gonna be kind of watching to see like how, mm -hmm. how does this all uh play out well you know and you mentioned that about about love and justice and and, and something that uh you know I, i've been listening to i think it was probably um uh, David Inchauskas, I was listening to his podcast, uh, the Liberation Theology podcast, and he quoted a scripture about uh, thirsting for justice. And I was like, that's, an, that's interesting. I don't recall ever hearing that. And so I looked it up. And in the Catholic Bible, apparently, that's the way it's interpreted. But in like King James and a lot of other a lot of other like Protestant associated translations, it's thirsting for righteousness. And I think that really, mm. really sums up the 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 different focus that you have between some you know more culturally conservative churches and some that are are more social justice oriented is that you've got you've got one group of folks that are talking about a thirsting for justice which is the 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 connotation there is like there's a societal implication to justice. You don't think about justice like internally. You think about justice externally. You think about justice collectively. And then these other group of churches who are talking about thirsting for righteousness, which seems to me to have an individual purity type of connotation. Like, you know, thirsting for the ability like not to drink or the like not to give into temptation and go to this ball game next weekend right you know and that's that's the kind of thing that that I grew up in is that you know we're supposed to be thirsting for righteousness so that we are individually good enough and the idea that there's that there is a legitimate way to interpret even just that verse in a way that is thirsting for justice collectively in our society really spoke a lot to me and and I think really sums up well what y'all are doing at the Magnificast and, and what, what a lot of other people are doing in church and, and um, uh, you know, in small groups across the country that, that are really exciting. 
Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that that uh, that distinction between righteousness and justice is so funny. Um, it's just a translation problem, right? And like right. Uh, and how that works out. <laughs> but, but it's it makes so us, much deeper, right? I mean, it, yeah. it represents so much. Totally, because you know you hear the word righteousness and you think of sort of an individual um, type of virtue or something that you're a righteous guy. <laughs> Not really a, a phrase we use anymore. Um, but, you know, it, it signals something different than the word justice. But like, uh, you know, I grew up in church uh, hearing righteousness a lot, righteousness language. And um, I always remember the first time I went to sort of a different sort of church. And um, I don't know if you're familiar. There's a Bible verse. It's like it's an Amos, which is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. It's like, you know, but uh, it's like let justice roll down as as waters. Right. And, um, you know, but I grew up hearing that differently as like righteousness roll down as waters. And it's like, well, it's a different feeling. <laughs> it's a different right. feeling. A, a, <laughs> a waterfall of, you know, your personal sort of like goodness in the world is different than a waterfall of justice crashing down on people. Right. So, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, the Bible has a lot of like moral language that's really interesting. That's also couched in really particular sort of historical contexts. Um, but uh, they've been uh, covered over, I think, a lot, in a lot of cases. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind, I, w- whenever people ask me about like why I think Christianity is radical or, or important for, for labor organizers to think about, um, I always think about James. Uh, so James is a, uh, it's a letter that is written in the New Testament. And uh, it's one of my favorite Bible verses. Uh, so in James 5, there's a Bible verse that's titled Warning to Rich Oppressors. And uh, it's pretty fiery, basically, right? It yeah, says, that's that's one of my favorite verses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the verse says that the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back in fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. I love that because, you know, like wage theft is a, a, a super rampant problem in the world, especially amongst low wage workers. There was a, um, a survey that SEIU did uh, a little bit earlier, right, right before the summer, like in May. And it was a, about uh, fast food workers in California and, and wage theft. And the survey found that 85% of fast food workers in California suffered from wage theft. And, and I guess like, I mean, that sucks. It's awful. That's, right? <laughs> it's like the worst what, thing I can that's imagine. That's an overwhelming number. Yeah. I mean, totally. Um, and, you know, people lose billions every year in wage theft. But in the Bible, in the, tell your pastor, tell your religious friends right. that, <laughs> that uh, when when uh, workers have, have wages stolen from them, God hears it directly. And God's mad about it. Is, is yeah. The Department of Labor about. may not hear about it. God knows <laughs> right. about The Attorney it. Yeah. General not listening. Um, yeah. yeah. God and, is. And, you know, the King James Version is definitely very cryptic and difficult to, to understand sometimes. And, and maybe there are some issues with the translation. But uh, the King James Version of James 5 is very, very metal. I don't know if you've mm. ever, but, but this is what yeah. it says. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields which is of you kept back by fraud crieth and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Yeah, it's right. super metal. Very, You're, very That's cool. got to be ready. 
your wealth is a canker is a great line. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of translations, uh, so there's another translation that a lot of Protestants use called the message. And it's like a uh, sort of like updated language. I got to say, I have, I think I have like a lot of criticisms of it, but um, when it comes to James five, it does rule. Uh, it's at the very end. It says you've looted the earth and lived it up, but you'll, all you'll have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. It's like, ooh, oh my ooh, God. Ooh. yeah, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think what's interesting, though, about all of, all of these types of Bible verses is that they, they speak to the, like, the, there's a real impetus within the Christian tradition and within, like, the Bible that we ought to care about justice um, and, and that God cares about justice. And, you know, it's not just anyone's justice. It's sort of always sort of a justice on the side of somebody. It's just right. outside the poor every single time, right? So I think that's pretty important. I mean, whether or not you believe in God, yeah, whatever, it's complicated, right? Uh, things are very hard <laughs> to figure out. But um, you do have to recognize that there is a certain type of language that's like embedded within faith traditions that is moral. And I think it's good to figure out how to use those uh, in, in organizing conversations and struggles against bosses and CEOs. Um, I think it's a, it's a great sort of thing to have in your toolkit. Uh, Matt, I appreciate your time. Um, they have a podcast. Matt and Dean have a podcast called The Magnificast. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. One of the others, one of the other parables that they talked about was the parable of the talents, which, uh, as we all good evangelical people know, uh, the guy who did not uh, double his talents was bad. And actually... Perhaps he was the good guy. Perhaps he was the good guy. So I'm not going to spoil it for you anymore. Go check out that episode. Go check out The Magnificast and Matt, and Matt Bernico. Uh, Matt, appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Thank you so much. Yep. Keep up the good work. All right, folks. Yeah, definitely check that out. The, 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 lazy, the lazy servant actually might be the good guy. Um, I was a big fan of their uh, series around Easter time. Uh, mm-hmm. Really got into that, uh, diving into some liberation theology. Yeah. Um, you know, I have, like, probably most of you listening, sort of a complicated relationship with all this. Um, but it has been helpful to view this through the framework of love, justice, and solidarity. And um, there was a comment in the chat that from Ron that really resonated, which is that in the antebellum era... In the South, the church was a reactionary force, right? They were, they were pro-slavery. Um, in the North, generally speaking, more progressive, and much of the abolitionist movement was grounded in their religious faith. And I think that's a good reminder that we can't view it as a complete monolith. Right. Um, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, some folks are driven to organize their co-workers and fight for a better world because of their faith, uh, just as much as there are folks who are committing hate crimes and, right. and terrorism because of their faith uh, and, and other forms of, of bigotry and violence. So it's more, it's more complicated than, um, than it seems sometimes. And I think uh, I really like his point about you know, we have to be showing up in those spaces just as uh, folks from those spaces need to show up for us. Yep. Um, I think that's probably going to be the last of the 
of the big stuff. We had a couple of other things, but I think that we may have to pre-tape next week, so we may save it. But I, I, I did. I, I'm, I'm gonna. Uh, we're gonna go over this one more really quick story before we wrap, because I, I just can't. I can't not talk about it because of the absurdity of it. Um, we, we all know. We know and love Jonah Furman, staff writer for Labor Notes. Um, and last week, his kid lost a shoe. <laughs> That's never fun. So uh, he tweeted about it. He said, I lost my son's croc on a one-mile walk in the Forest Glen area of Silver Spring, Maryland, and he demands its return. Um, very fiery kid. I'm envisioning a viral tweet thing where somehow we find it. Thank you. So <laughs> it did go viral, and it went viral enough that a... Uh, a local news story, local news station ran with it. Uh, ABC 7 News. And folks, I'm happy to report that he got it. He got it. Uh, let's throw that tweet up where he got the... Unfortunately, we don't have uh, any of these graphics loaded um, what? for this segment. We don't? No, that's okay, though. Uh, well, yeah, so the guy who found it said he saw it on his MSN homepage. <laughs> of all things. Of all things, that's where he found it. Yeah. Um, so there we go. There's an example of social media actually doing something positive. Yeah. Um, it's rare to, rare to see that, rare to hear that. Uh, but Jonah's kid got his shoes back. Hell yep. yeah. All right. All right, folks, we appreciate your time. Got a good show lined up for you next week. And uh, make sure that you are, make sure that you buy our new shirts. You've got your pre order in. We're going to be closing. Get those orders in, y'all. Yeah, going to be closing that uh, probably on like the 16th or the 17th or something. So we can try to get those in by September. Want to try to make it so that people can wear them during the labor notes. Alabama Troublemaker School. That's going to be in October. So, uh, so yeah, get those orders in, support the show if you have the means and you think that it's cool, share it, stuff like that, Absolutely. like and subscribe. Yeah, the liking and the sharing and the commenting, it does make a difference. Um, That's what they tell us anyway. Yeah, yeah, and we really appreciate it. Just uh, And we love when we encounter new folks who, yep. you know, like our caller this morning, yeah, first-time cool. listener, uh, and generate a whole conversation about organizing and starting a union and that's what that's why we do the show yeah all right folks we'll see you next week